In just a moment, I'm going to be joined by Rachel Maddow. You may know her as the host of The Rachel Maddow Show, but she also just came out with a brand new podcast that is so gangbusters good. It is about one of the only sedition trials in our nation's history. We're going to talk with her about that in just a moment. But first, let's talk about the sedition trial that's happening today. After a break for the holiday weekend, today, federal prosecutors in Washington, D.C. resumed prosecuting the case against five leaders of the Oath Keepers on charges of seditious conspiracy or trying to overthrow the government. Last week saw prosecutors zero in on the group's founder, Stuart Rhodes. But today's testimony focused on a former Afghanistan veteran and an Ohio bar owner. Her name is Jessica Watkins. Prosecutors today introduced evidence that Watkins discussed cutting off pool cues to serve as Antifa smashers at pro-Trump rallies in D.C. ahead of January 6th and sought to recruit and train people to join the Oath Keepers. If they're convicted of seditious conspiracy, Watkins and her fellow defendants each face up to 20 years behind bars. Now, there has been a lot of legal wrangling on the radar lately, but this trial is incredibly important because it is yet another example of individual accountability. In this case, accountability for a small group that sought to inflict significant damage. At the same time, individual accountability does not, on its own, get to the root of the problem, especially here. Let's take, for example, the case of what happened to D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone on January 6th. I should warn you that some of what we are about to show is graphic. So if you don't want to see it, now is your chance to turn away. This is the image that made Officer Fanon famous. It's a snapshot taken just moments after he'd been dragged out of a police line in front of the Capitol on January 6th, then beaten and tased repeatedly at the base of his skull. It is also moments before a member of the mob beat him with a flag saying, Blue Lives Matter. Thanks to Officer Fanon's body cam footage, we have incredibly detailed evidence of what happened to him that day. Fanon self-deployed. He saw on the news what was happening at the Capitol, and he got on his police radio, and he went where help was needed. We can hear for ourselves how Fanon eventually got the crowd to stop attacking him by pleading with them that he had children. We can see for ourselves as Fanon is pulled away from the attack, having suffered a heart attack and a traumatic brain injury. And crucially, we can see who the individuals are, who assaulted Officer Fanon. That's how online sleuths and the FBI found this man, who has since pleaded guilty of dragging Fanon into the crowd shouting, I got one. Or this man, who has also since pleaded guilty, who you can hear on Fanon's body cam screaming, Kill him with his own gun. Or the man who stands accused of ripping Fanon's badge from his chest and taking it home as a souvenir. Or the man who is accused of tasing Fanon repeatedly. None of these men were Oath Keepers. They weren't organized. They didn't have much of a plan. And yet they did horrible, violent things together. Officer Fanon just published a book about his experience. It's called Hold the Line, The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul. In it, he describes his assailants as, quote, independent losers who became emboldened within the mob. But there's connective tissue between groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and members of the general crowd on January 6th. 
When FBI agents asked the man who tased Fanon why he traveled to D.C. for January 6th, the man said, quote, Trump called us. Trump called us to D.C. Unfortunately, the basic facts of what happened on January 6th and Trump's role in inciting the events of that day, that's all become now a matter of partisan debate. Republicans in Congress have done everything they can to downplay Trump's involvement and sell an alternative set of facts to the American public about January 6th. So Officer Fanon has made it his personal mission to make sure history tells the story of that day correctly and that everyone responsible up to and including former President Trump is held responsible. Fanon showed everyone who would watch his body cam footage. He testified before the January 6th committee and told his story in excruciating detail. Here's a voicemail that Officer Fanon received after testifying to the January 6th committee about how he was brutally beaten. First safe message. Yeah, this is from Michael Fanon, Metropolitan Police Officer. You're on trial right now, lying and that. You want an Emmy, an Oscar? What are you trying to go for here? I wish they would have killed all you scumbags, because you, you people are scum. They stole the election from Trump, and you know that, you scumbag. And you too bad you didn't beat this As much as I would like to say that that voice is an outlier, that that voicemail is uncommon, I don't think it is. Polling from this summer shows that more Republicans believe that January 6th was a legitimate protest than they did a year before. You can see that green line, the percentage of Republicans who think the January 6th was a legitimate protest, jumping nearly 15 points in a year. And that red line That's the amount of Republicans who view January 6th as an insurrection, and it dropped 20%. Even, and maybe especially within the police force itself, Officer Fanon has been ostracized for trying to tell the truth. In his book, Fanon writes, the personal animosity toward me has grown so strong that some police leaders worried that if I returned to street patrol, I might end up like Frank Serpico. The NYPD whistleblower was shot under mysterious circumstances in 1971 and nearly died awaiting a suspiciously delayed response. That animosity would lead to Fanon's decision to leave the the force, the police force. We now know that the animosity Fanon felt in that force might also not be an outlier. Earlier this year, the Anti-Defamation League identified 373 individuals who were both members of the Oath Keepers and are currently serving in law enforcement agencies across this country. Yes, those Oath Keepers, the ones who are on trial for sedition. Today, the Department of Justice updated its running count of how many people it has prosecuted for involvement on January 6th. 880 defendants have been arrested so far. 412 of those, 12 of those individuals have pleaded guilty. 21 have been found guilty at trial. Those numbers include the Oath Keepers, who are on trial for sedition today. What those numbers don't include are the people who incited January 6th. Those people, including former President Trump, have yet to be held to account in any serious way. This Thursday, the January 6th committee will hold its next hearing. One of the people who will be there watching, seeing how the committee lays out its case and tries to get this history right, is Officer Michael Fanon. Joining us now is former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone. He is the author of the book that is out today, Hold the Line, The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul. Officer, 
Michael, thanks for joining me today. And thank you for sharing your story with the American public in excruciating detail. Thank you for having me. Um, I just want to start with that stat that we mentioned in the beginning of this segment about the number of people who are in law enforcement who also belong to a group like the Oath Oath Keepers. As someone who served in law enforcement, does that surprise you? Did that surprise you when you heard that statistic? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, Unfortunately, we've seen uh, a growing trend, I I would say, ever since 2015, 2016, of uh, law enforcement officers, members of the military, um, joining up with um, groups like the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters. Uh, I think that um, a lot of the rhetoric that these groups use to recruit law enforcement officers is the idea that they are preserving our republic, that they're fighting to uh, preserve democracy. Uh, But in reality, um, they have a very perverse version of what uh, democracy uh, actually is. You were a Trump supporter. You voted for him in 2016. Is that right? Uh, I did vote for Donald Trump in 2016. In 2016, I was a single issue voter. Mm-hmm. My vote, my uh, issue was law enforcement. Yeah. And I felt uh, at that time that Donald Trump and the Republican Party best represented law enforcement. Did you see in the between 2016 and 2020 in, in inside law enforcement? the sort of mushrooming of this kind of oath keeper, proud boy-like um, seditious behavior when you were in the ranks of law enforcement? Could you see that among people or men and women who supported the, the president at, at the time? Uh, not so much the extremist ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I experienced was a reaction to what police officers were experiencing post-Ferguson. Um, you know, we ha- we saw a lot of politicians using what I would say was uh, dangerous rhetoric against law enforcement. uh, And it resulted in law enforcement officers, uh, in many cases, being targeted. I mean, we saw the assassination of police officers in Dallas, Texas. We saw the assassination of police officers in Louisiana and here in New York City. I went to many of those officers' funerals, and that had a chilling effect within the ranks of police officers, especially uniformed police officers. Mm-hmm. And, and what was it about Trump's message that appeals to um, law enforcement officials? What, what was it that was so catalytic in terms of fostering this allegiance, if you will? I, I mean, I think it was uh, him vocalizing support for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We felt as though we had been abandoned by, um, you know, the Democratic Party uh, and that or at least many of us did, uh, and that, you know, we saw this, um, you know, kind of blind uh, loyalty to law enforcement from Donald Trump. But it was pretty early on in his administration that I recognized, like, how dangerous that was and how um, it was not productive. What was it that sort of revealed the danger? Was it a specific moment that you remember thinking, this is not the right guy to lead the country? Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I'm not going to lie. I was attracted to his uh, kind of bombastic uh, approach, and uh, I'm not a big fan of politicians in general. Yeah. So watching him uh, make other politicians uneasy uh, appealed to me for a time, and then I realized like how counterproductive it was. And as a police officer, I didn't see anything getting better. Things were getting worse. You know, we need politicians who are going to facilitate 
constructive conversation between law enforcement and the communities we serve. And what Donald Trump was doing was actually dividing law enforcement and making it more difficult to interact with these communities and vice versa. It sounds like you made your break with sort of the Trump agenda before January 6th. But I want to talk about that day and what happened in the aftermath, because you took your cause to the Hill. I mean, you've met with Republicans in Congress urging them to call out the events of January 6th. And you've met with Republicans who are in leadership, like Kevin McCarthy, who is poised to become the Speaker of the House if the Republicans take back Congress in November. Can you tell me about those conversations, specifically Leader McCarthy, because there's been some new reporting about the sense of danger he felt like he was in on January 6th. And then, of course, his actions after January 6th, which have not been exactly to hold the president, account, former president, accountable. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I, I had pretty low expectations going into all of those meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why, what, why was that? Uh, I mean, uh, I think I, like many Americans, I've come to expect little or nothing from uh, my elected leaders. Um, what did shock me was the level of indifference that I experienced uh, from people like uh, Kevin McCarthy and uh, many of the other Republican leaders and, and just members of Congress that I met with, uh, specifically the indifference that they showed not only to me, um, who was there, you know, trying to represent the other officers that responded to the Capitol that day to fought to defend democracy and, and the lives of the individuals that were in the building, but also the indifference that he showed towards um, Brian Sicknick's mother, Gladys Sicknick. Uh, you know, this is the mother of a fallen police officer, a dead police officer. Uh, and many of these uh, people like Kevin McCarthy and, and in one particular instance, uh, Lindsey Graham, you know, took an adversarial position um, with this woman who was you know, looking for answers. I mean, I, I, indifference is one word for it. But I think what is so striking to someone on the outside of this is that I'll, there's a reporting today that on January 6th, McCarthy is on the phone with President Trump saying they're trying to effing kill me. This is someone who's terrified for his own life. And then in the subsequent days, can't acknowledge to you or publicly what happened that day. I mean, is that indifference or is that aiding and abetting someone who is trying to tear down democratic institutions. I, I guess I just wonder if I would describe more nefarious um, motives to someone who so clearly understood the stakes that day, the danger, the peril, um, not just individually, but to the country. And then in the months since has done anything but lead on the issue. I mean, I, I would describe it as that. I, I don't know if it rises to the level of you know, criminal culpability. And I'm not suggesting yeah, criminal culpability. But, but certainly, you know, there's a moral and ethical obligation that I believe that our uh, politicians have. Uh, and, you know, Kevin McCarthy has failed to meet that threshold, I think, time and time again. Um, it's disappointing. Did it, but did any of it shock you after you left those meetings, effectively having failed in your quest? Uh, I don't know if I failed in my quest necessarily with those events. I mean, I went there. Uh, I met with Kevin McCarthy. I had an opportunity to uh, to speak with him. I recorded that conversation. Yeah. Um, and I was able to expose, you know, elements of his indifference. And, you know, what I saw is a, a calculated approach to mm-hmm. the events of January 6th. Like, let me assure you. Um, and there's a lot, there's people out there that are much better versed in, in Kevin McCarthy than me, but 
Kevin McCarthy really wants to be Speaker of the House, and he will do anything to be Speaker of the House. Um, You know, he's not concerned about his legacy. Uh, He's only concerned with uh, retaining power and, and obtaining that position. And so what he did was, you know, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, he saw it for what it was. Mm-hmm. He voiced that, vocalized it on the House floor. And then when he realized that it was going to be uh, politically disadvantageous to stay that course, he reversed course, went down to Mar-a-Lago, kissed Trump's ass. And now we're seeing, you know, a very different approach to uh, what January 6th was from him and the rest of the uh, Republican Party. Uh, yeah, I mean, the polling on this is shocking that the Republicans on whole are more prone to believe that January 6th was legitimate protest today than they were previously. And that said, and it's a combination of you've got Fox News pumping propaganda out, downplaying the, you know, the reality of that day. Uh, and then you also have uh, elected representatives in Congress and, and other political positions going back to their constituents and telling them things like Andrew Clyde saying it was a tourist day. Um, you know, I forget his name from Wisconsin, the uh, um, senator there, Ron saying, Johnson. Ron Johnson, saying that, you know, he, he keeps engaging in this debate about what an armed insurrection is. Well, I mean, I hate to tell you this, Ron Johnson, but there were firearms there. There were guns there. It's a fact you're going to have to get over it and accept the fact that this was an armed insurrection in whatever sense that you describe it as. Yeah. But there were guns, period. It says someone on the front lines. I, I, we know that there are and, and certainly, you know, in your broader mission to raise awareness about what happened, to hold people accountable. You have been remarkably successful. And this book is testament to that. There is a January 6th committee hearing on Thursday. And I wonder when you think about that day. Are there any unanswered questions for you? What do you still wonder? Do you have questions? I think at this point, the select committee has done an outstanding job of investigating, you know, what I described early on in my congressional testimony. It's the root causes for January 6th. That was the question that I had for Liz Cheney that she asked me at the conclusion of my testimony. You know, I want to know what the root causes were. And I think that we've, um, you know, we've seen that, you know, we had a president, a sitting president who looked to defraud the American people um, by saying that the 2020 election was stolen, that it was not, in fact, a free and fair election, which it was. Um, the unanswered question I have is why is it that almost two years out from January 6th, we've been incapable uh, of acknowledging the police officers Uh, on an individual level who responded to the Capitol Mm -hmm. uh, and fought not only to save the lives of the individuals in the building, to preserve democracy and and for one another. Um, You know, we awarded a congressional gold medal to the Metropolitan Police Department and to the U.S. Capitol Police. And I think that's disingenuous, like many officers feel. Um, It wasn't institutions like the Metropolitan Police Department that fought to save democracy. It was individual officers acting in their own volition in many uh, situations um, who, you know, like myself, self-dispatched and went there and fought for hours. Yeah. I mean, that's 
what you have done, what you did was extraordinary. And we know there are others like you. And our hope is that they feel empowered to come out and speak about their experiences. But until and unless that happens, we are left with these riveting um, and terrifying accounts like the one chronicled in your book, Officer uh, Michael Fanone, formerly of the D.C. Metropolitan Police. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for your sacrifices so far on behalf of preserving our democratic institutions. The book is out today. It's called Hold the Line, The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul. Thanks for coming on. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. We have much more ahead this hour. I will talk to one of the very few reporters to speak with Attorney General Merrick Garland and someone who now believes the DOJ will actually indict Donald Trump. But next, Rachel Maddow will join me here in studio. There she is to talk about her new incredibly riveting podcast, Ultra, the radicalization of the GOP and so much more. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. In November of 1938, in the Nazi-German pogrom against Jews, known as Kristallnacht, it shocked the world. But in America, one incredibly influential voice in the media basically told his audience that the Jews had it coming. Father Charles Coughlin, a Catholic priest who spoke to an immense audience with his weekly broadcasts on the radio, he was well into a campaign to turn his listeners against Jews, whom he blamed for the menace of communism. And by 1938, Coughlin's anti-Semitic rants had turned into calls for action. His followers obliged, and they created an organization called the Christian Front. Here's my colleague, Rachel Maddow, on what happened next. In the fall of 1939, a dozen cans of cordite, military-grade explosives, went missing from the 165th Infantry Division of the New York National Guard. A dozen cans of cordite about 1,500 rounds of ammunition as well. Those explosives and that ammo went missing because the commander of a New York National Guard machine gun company took that stuff and gave it to the Christian Front. The Christian Front, by then, had started to prioritize the recruitment of new members who had military training and military connections. They decided to escalate their own military training and their own arsenal of weapons. By then, Father Coughlin's Christian Front Militia had decided it was time to move beyond rallies and protests and pickets and beating up Jews in the streets. By then, they had decided it was time for them to move as an organization in a big way. That true story about one seditious conspiracy plot to overthrow the U.S. government, well, that is a taste 
of the riveting and, dare I say, shocking new podcast called Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra. Guys, run, do not walk, and download the first two episodes that are available now. And now it is my pleasure to say, joining us now is someone you all know very well, the creator and host of the new podcast, Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra. Rachel Maddow herself. Nice my to friend. see you, my it's friend. It's always good to see you. Thank you for I that. I feel very blessed to have you on oh. this television program to talk about this. Really, I will say, everyone has said the same thing, but it doesn't make it less true. Incredibly urgent and revelatory podcast. We should all know this history, and yet somehow we've been walking around with these insane, seditious conspiracy blinders on. <laughs> and I got to ask you, for people who haven't yet listened to it, mm. Father Coughlin, Coughlin, um, who was he? And, and, and how big was his audience, really? I mean, he was spreading this fascistic, anti-Semitic rhetoric, and apparently he had a lot of takers. Oh, yeah. And he start, it's a, there's so many interesting things about him. And I feel like he's kind of the only person in this whole story, this whole eight-episode arc of the podcast, who you might have heard of mm-hmm. before. You know, Father Coughlin, I mean, maybe you've never heard of him. But if there's anyone amid this cast of characters, he's the one. And he's a, a parish priest. He's not up in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. He starts off doing these radio broadcasts from his parish in Royal Oak, Michigan. And he kind of actually starts off as a FDR New Dealer. Hmm. And he turns against FDR and he turns against the New Deal and he turns really, really hard right. He turns against democracy and he praises Mussolini. He writes fan mail to Mussolini, which is As one does when one is turned. (laughs) He says that America should pursue the Franco way, meaning we should have Franco, we should have a Franco-style dictatorship here, um, a takeover and sort of a hunt with a junta taking over by violence and by force. And he eventually, essentially tries to rally his followers to rise up violently against the U.S. government because it's been taken over by the Jews and the communists, which he sees as one and the same. And he's just this anti-Semitic, fascistic demagogue. And he's doing this at a time when his radio audience is, depending on the estimate that you trust, somewhere between 30 and 40 million Americans per week. And there's only 130 million Americans in the country at this time. So the equivalent like TV audience right now would be him getting 80 million people a week. Wow. Right. Like on a, on, on the greatest cable news night of the greatest cable news (laughs) ever, maybe you're talking about 5 million people. Yeah. He's getting 80 million people and he's essentially calling for them to form violent armed cells to go, you know, rise up to, to, to turn against Jews and to overthrow the government. What's so shocking, A, first of all, the the, the traction he gets in American society, mm-hmm. 30 to 40 million people, right? And then the people actually take him up on his, like, suggestion that they should be armed and they should sort of foment re- revolution, insurrection. We have a full-page Christian Front story from the 1940 edition of Life magazine, which talks about the G-men who were, the G-men who arrested 17 men for plotting revolution. That's... That's oh, the that's 17 yeah. men. That, it's, so these are the guys that are working as part of the Christian front. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, when we talk about the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, we kind of think of them as a confection, uh, not a confection, but an uh, expression of contemporary America. And yet there were numerous actors that fit that same bill back in the 1940s. Sure. And this was just one chapter. The guys who were arrested were in the New York chapter. There was also a huge chapter in Boston, a huge one in Minneapolis, a really big one in Philadelphia. I mean, there was there was St. Louis. There was all, all over the country had Christian Front 
chapters. And when those 17 guys got arrested in New York, one of the things that was so unnerving, I'm glad you played that clip with the cordite and all the stuff taken from the, the, the New York National Guard. The majority of the guys who were arrested were either actively in the National Guard or the military or had been in the military previously. They wanted people with military training, military connections, and they stole U.S. military weapons and explosives to use in this plot that they were planning for January 20th, 1940. I mean, and let's just set aside the idea that it was a January plot for a moment. Mm -hmm. Did anything else bind these folks together? I mean, I mean, did we have a profile of the typical Christian Front member? Did we know why they were activated beyond a common interest in law enforcement? Like, what can, I mean, in, this, in the same way that we're trying to get an understanding of who is attracted to this fascistic, anti-democratic message that's being spouted by the far right wing mm-hmm. today, who was attracted to it back in the 1940s? It's a really, really good question. And one of the things that was a challenge about putting the podcast together is that there's a whole lot of different violent plots to overthrow the government. (laughs) And so you've got the Christian fronters who um, are followers of Father Coughlin, are by and large Catholic, um, are by and large people in um, cities. It's all men. Um, but certainly they have, they have a, a wider range of supporters. But then you've also got other groups that are planning similar plots who are, who also are stealing stuff and planning takeovers of armories. There's a group called the Silver Shirts. The Silver Shirts, um, which features prominently in episode three, which comes out on Monday, um, they actually are a real middle class group, uh, businessmen, teachers, lawyers. Um, and it is within the strictures of that group that they all have to be armed. And many of them have tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition at home, and they're planning on their own violent overthrow of the U.S. government, again, to get rid of the Jewish communist Mm. plot and install a Nazi-style dictatorship here. And so the Christian fronter profile is a little different than the silver shirt profile. That's a little different than this other plot that we talk about right after the 1940 election um, involving some ex-Klansmen, which had a more Klan vibe to it. But this message of authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. of a fascist... A need to organize along fascist lines because there's some enemy. There's yeah. a, there, it's the Jews or it's the immigrants or it's black people or whatever it is, or it's the communists. And, and that's what's wrong with America. And they've taken over the government. Therefore, we need to take over the government and install a strong man to take this back. Everybody's got their own little flavor of it. But that same fascistic authoritarian imperative moves them all and moves them all at a time that the Hitler government is interested in advancing here. Well, and I have to draw the parallel to today, right? I mean, first of all, the explicit praise of Hitler and Mussolini and Franco in the literature from some of these groups. It made me think of, oh, Viktor Orban speaking at CPAC. Now, I'm not comparing Viktor Orban to Adolf Hitler, but I will say the lust for authoritarianism, the explicit desire to have a strong man, you know, correct the wrongs, Mm -hmm. is as true today as it was as true then as it is today. And I wonder if in your research for this and the putting together of this podcast, whether you were thinking about the sort of zeal that the current Republican Party has for people like Vladimir Putin or Victor Orban. I think there's a reason that when you look around the world at authoritarian leaders, um, you could kind of swap all of their heads in Photoshop. You know what I mean? Like, okay, there's Putin with a bear, but there's Bolsonaro, like kind of doing the yeah. same thing. Like, and there's, you know, and there's Berlusconi bunga bunga. Yeah. Like, there's a, there's a, there's, these guys all like seem to play it's on the like same. Like garbage pail kids. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, there's a, it's because that same message from all of them, that idea of a strong man who's going to protect you from the other that we need to exterminate so we can go back to the way it was where we were pure. I mean, it's all the same message everywhere. It's the same in the Philippines as it is in Brazil, as it is in Hungary, as it was back then. And it's always going to be different in terms of the way that it 
you know, what it's able to achieve, how far they're able to go, what exactly they're going to use as their organizing principles, but they rhyme for a reason. Mm -hmm. And when you hear CPAC, you know, when CPAC goes to Hungary and when you see, um, you know, the CPAC tweet that came out praising the Russian annexation of of Ukraine and you see, you know, Trump stumping for Bolsonaro as Bolsonaro is saying, if I don't win, we're going to have a we're going to have a war in Brazil because we won't trust the election results. It's of a piece. It's of a piece over time, and it is of a piece across geography. Rachel, we have more to discuss. Okay. Can you stay with us for just a moment? We are going to take a quick commercial break. Again, for those of you that missed it at the top, the riveting podcast that you must listen to right now is called Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra, and it is available immediately. Go on the Internet. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. I am back with my friend and colleague, Rachel Maddow, talking about her new excellent podcast, Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra. That podcast explores the assault on American democracy from right-wing extremists and elected officials and an assault that took place during the lead-up to the American entry into World War II. And there are a lot of parallels to what we are seeing today. But there is one significant difference between the history that's explored on Rachel's podcast and our current state of affairs. Today's anti-democratic extremists are no longer on the fringes of America's two major political parties. Today, extremist beliefs are part of the mainstream Republican platform, and they have swept up Republican voters en masse. According to The Washington Post, a majority of Republican nominees for state and federal offices this year are election deniers. And more than a handful of them are within inches of winning those close races. Like Herschel Walker, who despite all the scandals and the foibles and the conspiracy theories, he is just two points behind Senator Raphael Warnock, according to a new poll out today. Another poll shows this week, this week shows election denier and January 6th defender Senator Ron Johnson polling one point ahead of his Democratic opponent, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. The zeal to shred norms and upend Democratic institutions is in some states on the verge of becoming a majority position. Is there something plainly darker and scarier about this moment? And if so, what can history teach us about it? Back with me is Rachel Maddow. Rachel, I I know that this this podcast is an excellent job of giving us context for everything that's happening right now. But I wonder if when you look at the stats about election deniers that are going to be swept into office in all likelihood in November, you look at the, the sort of rhetoric of the of the Republican Party at this point when it comes to seditious conspiracy and the overturning of democratic institutions and norms. Does it feel like we're in a more treacherous place now than we were uh, 85 years ago? I mean, yes and no. On, on the one hand, I think it is worth being sort of 
sadly realistic about how mainstream some of the views that I describe in the podcast were at the time. Okay. Like the America First Committee, which was the isolationist, anti-interventionist, don't get involved in World War II movement, that was, you know, that's Henry Ford, the most prominent industrialist in the country. That's the most famous celebrity in the country. Who The, the most famous person in the country is not the president, Charles Lindbergh. Yeah. Right? It's all of these incredibly powerful people, incredibly rich people, incredibly influential people. And they are, in some ways, some of the dark corners of the America First movement are very much overlap with some of these seditious and violent ultra-right groups. So there was a mainstream nature to the bad stuff that I'm talking about Mm -hmm. from 80 years ago. But I also think that the Justice Department was really onto something there. Sort of the arc of the story of ultra is when the Justice Department realizes that the Hitler government is doing a few different things in our country. Number one, they've had incredible and shocking success winning over members of Congress and United States senators to do their work here. And they're, they're, op, they're running an operation. The Nazis are running an operation through the Congress. Justice Department figures that out. At the same time, the Justice Department figures out that the German government is also supporting violent groups that want to overthrow the U.S. government and install fascism here. And when they realize both of those things are happening at once, that you've got real violence with weapons and military capability, and you've got power, You've got people at the very core of American political power. It's the radicalism and violence linked to power that gives you a real seditious threat, potentially an existential threat to the country. Mm -hmm. That's what we have around the January 6th conspirators. That's what we have right now with the rising authoritarianism and election denialism within the Republican Party. And the question is whether or not it is a law enforcement response that's going to be enough or whether we need a broader response to tackle both of those pillars at once. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, let's talk about how you respond as a citizen or a journalist, right? I mean, there is this excellent um, pamphlet. I'm so glad you wanted to use this. I love this. Yes. What to do when the rabble rouser comes to town. Do we have a a little full screen of this? I think we do. Let me take this. This is an anti-fascist pamphlet from 1943. I got this from Cal State Northridge. From there, there, they have an incredible exhibit of anti-fascist organizing in Southern California in the 30s and 40s. There is a page that really caught me. It was, it was how, do you, how do you defeat the rabble-rouser as a citizen? And one of the pages says, the, this organize, it talks about silent treatment, basically not giving the rabble-rouser, in this case, a, a fascist or a white nationalist, not giving him the oxygen effectively. This organized silent treatment explodes the windbag. Deflate him and defeat him. How do you see that advice in our, as it pertains really to our current modern day uh, political landscape? Yeah, the whole point of this, and this I think is sophisticated, it's written like a children's book, yeah. but it's sophisticated anti-fascist strategizing. And they're saying, listen, if somebody is showing up in your town and they're trying to tell you to hate Jews, hate immigrants, hate black people, hate whoever it is, turn people against one another, there's some other that we all need to be allied against. They know it's going to be controversial. They're hoping it will upset you. They want the publicity. They might even want violence in, in terms of uh, confrontations between their supporters, their thugs, and those of you who are outraged. That's what makes them feel big and important, gives them more juice, gives them more fundraising opportunities, and moves them on to the next town. Don't do that. Don't publicize them. Instead, inoculate your community against these ideas. Tell them what they're going to hear before they hear them. Mm -hmm. Tell them how these are old ideas and this is how they've worked out in other places. Use education to make this stuff seem boring and old news and not salacious Hmm. and modern. And I just I feel like it's a it's a media criticism from the 2016 election. We're doing it all wrong. (laughs) Well, it's just 
when somebody's trying to make you outraged, that means that your outrage is you playing their request. Right. You know what I mean? Don't let people yank your chain. Control the narrative yourself. If somebody is trying to take over the news cycle by being outrageous, do not take the bait. Instead, describe what they are doing rather than allowing them to do it through you. That's what I think the message was then. And I wish we'd been better at it these last five years. Can you just record that onto my phone so I can play it before the show every <laughs> single night? Just join me every single night, my okay. friend. You seem busy, but... You know how to find me. You could just, just for like a block or two. Let me just break character here for a moment. I know I'm your guest, but I just want to tell you, you are helming this hour oh, so God, ably. that is and so I'll tell generous. You, as you know, don't listen to anybody. The staff of what used to be the Rachel Maddow Show five nights a week is working with you four nights a week and, just, and me one night a week. Our staff is so weird and so demanding <laughs> and so not like any other cable news. But staff they like cupcakes. They do they like, do like no, cupcakes. But I'm telling you, they are demanding and they don't. They don't. They do not suffer fools and they do not work well with people who don't do the work. And they're so impressed with you. And you're doing such good work. And you're just. Uh-oh. I'm very proud of you. And oh, I'm very glad that, that means you have these an hours. extraordinary amount. And you have. I'm telling you, those that staff is hard to please, and they are happy to be working with you and impressed. And I just. Like I'm really happy you're here. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. I'm really happy you're here. Just stay glued to that seat forever. Rachel Maddow, host of The Rachel Maddow Show. You may have heard it if you have heard of it. And the creator of the new podcast, Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra. Rachel, just everything you do is A+. And this one is not as keeping with that tradition. Thanks for joining me. Thanks Thanks for your time. Still ahead, after talking to Barrett Garland's friends, former colleagues, and even the attorney general himself, one reporter believes the Department of Justice will inevitably indict Donald Trump. The only question now is when Franklin Ford joins me next. Stick around. Again today, the Justice Department is sparring with Donald Trump over the Mar-a-Lago document scandal. In a filing several hours ago, the DOJ asked the Supreme Court not to intervene in a dispute about the specifics of the special master's document review. Trump has asked the court to allow the special master, Judge Raymond Deary, to review more than 100 classified documents retrieved from Trump's Florida Beach Club. In its filing today, the DOJ pushed back on that request, calling those particular documents, quote, extraordinarily sensitive. The lawyers for the department say Trump's attempt here is, quote, unprecedented and an attempt to restrict the executive branch's use of its own highly classified records in an ongoing criminal investigation. This is the latest salvo in a very public and ongoing legal battle the Justice Department is waging with the former president. And the attorney general, Merrick Garland, says he speaks through his filings, which means these days Attorney General Garland is speaking loudly and often and with plenty of damning detail. In a new piece called The Inevitable Indictment of Donald Trump, Franklin Four, a staff writer at The Atlantic, lays out the reasons he believes we will see the DOJ indict former President Trump in a matter of months. Four says he spent months closely observing Garland. He spoke with his closest friends and former clerks. He studied his record and he interviewed the attorney general himself. And Four has, quote, reached the conclusion that Garland's devotion to procedure, his belief in the rule of law, and in particular his reverence for the duties, responsibilities, and traditions of the U.S. Department of Justice will cause him to make the most monumental decision an attorney general can make. Four explains that even Garland's decision to have the FBI search Mar-a-Lago in August in the first place was a big deal, as it predictably opened the floodgates of right-wing rage at and criticism of the DOJ all of which the attorney general has very much tried to avoid. 
Garland was also the one who decided to include that photo of all the classified documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago in an August brief, a move that Trump has complained about almost nonstop. So this is a present ongoing fight, not a question of future Justice Department decisions that could spark political anger. This is all right now. Garland is already setting aside the political noise and following the evidence he has and abiding by the law he must uphold. It's no longer even a question of whether Garland might decide to indict Donald Trump in the future. According to four, it is when and probably soon. The Justice Department could pursue charges in the Mar-a-Lago case or the January 6th probe. And four reports that the location of the potential trial may portend trouble that's inevitably top of mind for Attorney General Garland. Quote, once the trial began, Trump would likely be stuck in court in Florida, perchance, if he's charged in connection with the Mar-a-Lago documents matter, or in Washington, D.C., if he's charged for his involvement in the events of January 6th. The site of a Washington trial would be the Pretty Men Courthouse on Constitution Avenue, which is just a short walk from the U.S. Capitol. This fact terrified the former prosecutors and other experts I talked with about how the trial might play out. Right-wing politicians, including Trump himself, have intimated violence if he's indicted. Like the Capitol on January 6th, the courthouse could become a magnet for paramilitaries, with protesters and counter-protesters descending on the same locale. The occasion would tempt street warfare. The prospect of such a spectacle fills Merrick Garland with dread, according to his friends. Joining us now is Franklin Four, staff writer at The Atlantic and the man who interviewed Attorney General Merrick Garland. Franklin, it's always good to see you. Thank you for this reporting and thanks for your time tonight. Hey, Alex. So let me just ask the question I think a lot of us are wondering. Why do you think the attorney general agreed to speak with you in this incredibly fraught time where, you know, a sideways glance he makes on camera is parsed for what that might imply about a future indictment? Right. And I should be upfront and say that when I spoke with Merrick Garland in June before the Mar-a-Lago raid, he did nothing that tipped his hand in any sort of way. The Justice Department, at least in my dealings with it, um, it really takes seriously its vows of silence. It doesn't talk about ongoing um, investigations. But I do think that Merrick Garland um, has taken a lot of criticism. There have been times when he seemed disconnected. And I think he suffered, especially in comparison to the January 6th commission uh, investigation on the Hill, which has done a vivid job of portraying a narrative. And he's taken a lot of heat for being extremely cautious. And so I think that he's decided that um, in certain venues, he's going to kind of step out and explain what he's doing a little bit more clearly, even if he's not talking about specifics. So this is an attempt to clarify the situation. And yet you came away with it uh, and clarify the situation, but not issue any (laughs) indictments, as it were. You came away with a pretty clear idea that he was going to issue an indictment against uh, for former President Trump. Can you talk to me about how you came to that conclusion and the evolution right. you've seen the attorney general undergo since he first came to office in many ways trying to lower the temperature of things in the nation's capital and around the country? 
So Merrick Garland is, uh, I describe him as a hyper-prudential institutionalist. He is somebody who is, to his core, a very cautious person. He's a creature of the Department of Justice. He really, really cares about protecting and preserving this institution, which was tarnished by the Trump administration. And so he saw his mission as uplifting this institution. And he was somebody who, as a judge and as a person who is um, very collegial, who's very uh, inclined to consensus building, he worked really closely with Republicans when he was a circuit court judge. And I think when he came to office, he had a certain idea about how the, the country could be restored, how the institution could be protected and preserved. But when you're attorney general, you sit in this position where you have this very panoramic view of, of American life. And um, the assault on democracy is something, and, and the decay of our democratic culture is something that he observed uh, really up close through the judicial system. And so I think over time, he wasn't exactly radicalized, but I think that he became kind of hardened and a little bit more confrontational and a little bit darker and more pessimistic when he thought about the institutions in this country. So I think that that shifted him to a more confrontational um, stand as it relates to to the anti-democratic forces in this country. And then you have the emergence of the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And in contrast to January 6th, which is a very complicated case, the Congressional Commission has portrayed things in a very clear sort of way, but they're not making a case that can stand up in a court of law. And so I think that is a very difficult case for the Justice Department to bring. But the Mar-a-Lago case, I think, is much more black and white, and it relates to a very core principle that Merrick Garland, it's, it's, it's just central to Merrick Garland, which is the rule of law, that there's nobody in this country who stands above the law, who's immune from, from the law. And so I think that this case, which is so, so much clearer, at least it seems from the outside. And the principle at stake is so central to the way that Garland thinks about the, the, the fabric of our democratic institutions. I think it is inevitable that he brings an indictment here. All right, Franklin Four, we will be catching up with you in the coming weeks and months. We know this all has to come to pass before a new president install is installed in theory. Franklin Four, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you as always for your reporting, Frank. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.